the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Welcome to Geek at Arms, a podcast camped squarely at the crossroads of geek culture and Christian faith. Hello, I am not James, and these are my co-hosts, Mike and Brian. How are you guys today? I'm doing fantastic because I'm here at the table with you instead of being way, way far away in California. And I'm doing pretty amazing. Like, Joy, we're at the digital table. This is fantastic. I mean, I I miss James. Like, listeners, James is not going anywhere, but this is great. Yay, me too. It's about time. It's only been, what, how many episodes? Five years or something like that. (laughs) Okay, so we'll do this and I'll see you in another five. No, 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 no. We'll, 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 I'll text James and say, hey, James, I'm actually at the airport. I need help. Can you run and get me? Okay, Joy, jump on the mics. We're good. Let's go. Let's roll with this episode. Sweet. Every month, something comes up. <laughs> but no one tell him when he edits this podcast, he will never guess. <laughs> I I suddenly see the flaw in my brilliant plan. (laughs) Rats. All right. So shall we head to geek out? Let's. I'll go first. Uh, So as listeners may be aware, we've made a couple announcements on Twitter and on Facebook. But James and I have started yet another podcast called Woolheads. And we are reviewing the second season of Wheel of Time, episode by episode, and having a a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. Uh, And it kind of snuck up on us. We'd been talking about this for a year, and we knew that season two was coming eventually. And then suddenly they dropped three episodes on us, and we had to just do them all all at once. So (laughs) there's been a lot of activity in podcasting for us the past week. Yeah, I... I'm just a little bit salty that I wasn't invited, despite the fact that I have, like, no prior contact with the property, had not read any of the books, uh, or any intention of watching any of the seasons. Okay, yeah, okay, fair. Fair, 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 fair. (laughs) Yeah, it's something that we'd kicked about, and then, oh, hey, season two is coming. Are we actually going to do this? And we decided we were, so I registered a domain name. We got another podcast feed set up and made a logo and there it is i actually started listening it's actually kind of fun despite the fact that i have absolutely no frame of reference <laughs> for what on earth is going on so i'm sure that for people who enjoy the property this is actually going to be a much more much more enjoyable experience okay so don't tell james but um i've only listened to the first one because i haven't had a chance to watch any of the shows well i take that back I did have a chance to watch the first episode with um, Brian and James, and I might have fallen asleep, not because of the show, but because it was late and small children and all that. But, you know, take from that what you will. No, I think that Alan and Minmax will still back you up one way or the other. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So other than the new podcast, I have been spending all of my free time playing Baldur's Gate 3. Uh, that looks like that is quite a game. It is living up to the hype. It's an extremely extensive game. There's so much to do, so many people to talk to. It actually makes uh, speak with animals useful. You can talk to any animal in the game. Rats, rabbits, oxen. And sometimes they give you clues. Sometimes they give you useful information. So you got to go around and talk to the animals in addition to all the people. And sometimes you get to talk to the corpses to speak with dead. I hear that there's even a romance option with an NPC that's a bear. Well, the NPC is a druid who turns into a bear. I have not explored that particular romance path. I'm given to understand that, like many of the other romance paths, it's a little pornographic, which... If it's in, truly involving a bear, this is disturbing. That's so horrifying. <laughs> yes. The, the gif Yankee was bad enough. But. I mean, I've watched like the first half of Cocaine Bear, so like the, the imagination <laughs> is just running wild. 
I'm I'm saving the other half to watch with a child, so still still do recommend. But this is your geek out. Go right ahead. Okay. I really like that it's got most of the problems have multiple possible solutions. Swinging a sword at it isn't always the best move. Uh, sometimes it's the only available move, depending on what you've done or what you want to happen. But it's not always the case. Like there was one particular hard fight that I. I kept losing, so I looked for a different option in the conversation, and at one point, my opponent left the room and walked across this little bridge, and I noticed that I could interact with the bridge by attacking it. So I cut the bridge while she was walking across and down into the hole she went. I was going to say this sounds different than um, Baldur's Gate 1 and 2, where you're basically murder hobos, but no, that that still <laughs> applies to this scenario. Yeah, Ultimately, a lot of those solutions do come out to murder hobo one way or the other, but they don't have to necessarily. But really, that's why we play Baldur's Gate. Let's be honest. If you don't murder people, you don't get to take their stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I want the loot and the levels. Leave me alone. Unfortunately, I couldn't get the loot from the person in the, in the pit. So that was a disadvantage. You know, I can only imagine just camping out at the bottom of the bridge, especially one where it's, what is your name? You know, that <laughs> there. I mean, loot will just drop. <laughs> it's a little grisly getting to it. But <laughs> I guess no worse than if you're taking it by running somebody through with your sword. <laughs> if the path is grisly, just talk to the druid. I'm sure he'll find a solution. <laughs> Gosh. Anyway, I'm about half... Probably two-thirds of the way through it. I have no idea what I'm doing right now. All of my my quests are vague. It's like, I know I'm supposed to be looking for stuff, but I don't know where I'm supposed to look for it at. So it's it's still engaging. I think they spent the, the line share of their effort on the, the first act because that's what they could get. That's what they were offering to their beta testers and the early access people. So it really shows that there's a lot of depth in that first act and it kind of drops off in the second and the third. Hmm. Do you think you would play it again with a different character type? Oh, I'm absolutely going to play it through with a different character just because I, I kind of dedicated myself to the, the NPCs that I was traveling with and I haven't swapped them out for the others. So I want to get the other stories going too by, by using all the other NPCs. What are you playing right now? I am a deep gnome rogue named Mneris, and she has, she's kind of a little freak, actually. She she grasps her power, <laughs> and she romances the Githyanki, and yeah, she, she kind of surprises me, and it's like, you're an icky little lady. <laughs> <laughs> she keeps putting these worms in her brain to get more powers. Uh, yeah. That is, yeah, that's, that's icky. Yes. So I'm I'm not real impressed by her personally, but she is at least making the game fun. <laughs> I think we'll wait, probably wait. have the opportunity to delve into that a little bit later now, won't we? <laughs> so does your speak with animals work with the worms in her brain? Oh my gosh. No, it doesn't seem to. You don't ever get the opportunity to talk to the, uh, the mind flare worm things, parasites. Missed opportunity. I mean, you get to talk to all the mind flayers that put them there. So I guess you're, it's a hive mind thing. So I guess you're kind of talk to them, just not directly. That's probably and best. Making <laughs> notes for a new RPG skill <laughs> ranks in talk to the worms in my brain. <laughs> if that pops up on your next roll for shoes, I'm. Uh, yeah, that'd be awesome <laughs> and frightening. Oh my gosh, so many possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> so that wraps it up for me. I'll turn it over to you, Mike. I have uh, decided that uh, since I was taking some time off from doing like actual, uh, not actual reading because there's still reading involved, from heavy textbooks because I was waiting for my my new glasses to come in, and which they have, hooray progressives <laughs> reaching towards 50 need to get those prescriptions uh, <laughs> uh, adjusted if you don't like headaches. Yes. Um, so I was listening to some audiobooks, which I talked about last time, and I picked up a couple of graphic novels, uh, one of which was The Last Ronin, 
which is the final chapter of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, storylines. Um, there's, I mean, the property is going to reboot a thousand times. We know, but uh, this uh, this was uh, covering the idea that uh, Michelangelo is the last remaining turtle. And uh, his uh, his quest to to go ahead and get revenge on, um, of course, uh, the Foot Clan because who else? Um, and it's uh, it's Shredder's grandson who's uh, who's in charge uh, and who's uh, ultimately responsible for uh, for his brothers and his father's death. And just the close of his chapter in connecting with old friends and encountering old enemies. So. It was really visually pretty impressive. I also, around a similar time, got the TMNT Ultimate. I'm not like I'm not a huge turtle fan. Um, it's it's a nostalgic romp for me, so I'm not gonna, you know, folks. I am not gonna pretend to be like some sort of master on the property or, uh, or anything. Um, but this is kind of where I was at the time, and it was kind of fun to see see some of the things that popped up in the first eight issues be it'd be part of the bookends of the close of the book. So it was, yeah. So I read the beginning and then read the end and skipped everything in the middle. Basically. <laughs> Who is this Karai person? Anyway. I'm just envisioning um, an old shredder. You hit him and his dentures go flying. Like they missed, <laughs> they missed an opportunity. How many times have they hit shredder and made his dentures go flying? I mean, he, they, they turned him into a <laughs> shark at one point. There's crab shredder and shark shredder because they got weird somewhere in the middle. Um, yeah. He, he'd been killed. I don't know how many times <laughs> because it's comic books. Right. If you have a great villain, you have to kill them at least 18 times. <laughs> but yeah, now, did this follow on the continuity from the the original Eastman and Laird, or the more recent? I don't remember. I haven't been keeping track with the variants of the turtles. Yeah, it did. Okay, yeah, as in yeah, I hear your question, and then uh, as in I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Um, there's the the original creators were both involved. Um, mm -hmm. Only one I think was involved in some of the, adapting some early notes of the writing, uh, while the other was uh, only involved in art capacity. Uh, so they've not both been working in the turtle line for a while. My understanding is that there are some later storylines that it picks up on and it kind of gives homage to the start, but it, it does not like it has, it does not end evenly from where you saw things originally start. I mean, there are characters that I had no idea of, but they were apparently some big deals and I didn't know that they were big deals until it, the character actually showed up as a DLC, uh, player in shredder's revenge and i'm like well hold on if this person karai showed up here and is showing up in the video game obviously something has happened that i'm not aware of but there's been like 30 years <laughs> worth of turtle stuff there's a lot right, that's happened that not. i'm not aware of <laughs> but i thought that it was uh, some parts in the middle kind of dragged but i thought that overall it was a fun story it was engaging it was interesting and i kind of like the closure of okay so this this story has an end. Um, mm. They'll reboot it. They'll do more of it. I mean, it's a hot property. It's a franchise. No, but... and I think there's three simultaneous efforts at it right now because there's a there's a movie in theaters right now. There's right. at least one other comic book in addition to this, and I think there might still be a Nickelodeon show. Oh, good so... for them then. Okay, so these guys are probably not hurting for money then. I don't think they are, no. Okay, good for them. Good for them. As many comic artists are, but Eastman and Laird, I think, have, have made their bank. Good. Good for them. I think. I don't know. Depends on what they do with it. Anyway. I suppose. <laughs> they're, not, they're not actually setting up criminal ninja organizations anywhere out there, are they? Because that would be, be taking their... Well, one of them did buy a tank, didn't they? Okay. I'm pretty sure it was demilitarized. Well, if we know about it, they're not doing it very well. <laughs> well or they're doing it extremely well because ninjas are just that sneaky. <laughs> the only other thing that's really on on my geek radar is uh actually have either of you been watching the ahsoka show yes 
How are you liking it? Or not? I haven't had a chance to. So you oh, go yeah. ahead. Yeah. I, I like it a lot. I especially like Ahsoka's characterization that you've got this action-y show and you're expecting everyone to be high-strung, but she is very much the meditative Jedi. Tail guns, please. Yeah. I'm just really enjoying her performance. Yeah. It's funny because I don't really know why I turned it on. If you're talking about nostalgic Star Wars for me, I'm going to pop in, say, the uh, the Heir to the Empire audiobook. Like, that, mm-hmm. for some reason, hits all the right nostalgia for me. Like, I grew up with the sure. original trilogy, but, like, I don't know. So, the idea of going on a quest for Thrawn does not interest me. The idea of going on a quest for Ezra, uh, for Ezra interests me even less. Mm-hmm. So this is a these are characters that I or a plot hook I didn't ask for a character that I thought was fun while I was watching the Clone Wars as an adult. Okay, she's cool. Um, But really, the interaction between Ahsoka and uh, and Sabine, I really like the idea of this being a mentor mentee relationship. And especially with Ahsoka being so far developed from where she was at the end of Clone Wars Mm -hmm. to where she is now, feels like it's a grown, mature character. Sabine, on the other hand, seems like she's stagnated since Rebels. And I'm thinking that they stagnated her character and kept her impulsive, young, carefree with responsibility so that they can show how she develops during the course of the show. So watching this relationship, I think, is really has really been has been what's keeping me interested which i i think is kind of a testament to the quality of the show when it's something that as i said none of these hooks interest me i don't know why i turned it on except for maybe i wanted to see lightsabers that day but (laughs) and still i'm keeping on coming back for more you know i didn't really have a whole lot of interest because honestly a lot of the latest properties that have come out i'm just kind of star wars out my daughter's interested because she has seen a lot of the Clone Wars. She she is a huge Sabine fan. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other day, James showed me a clip of, I think it was Ahsoka talking with her droid and the sass that droid conveyed. And I thought, okay, I'm going to watch this just for him because right uh-huh. now <laughs> he's my favorite character and I need to see his storyline. Yeah. A droid played by David Tennant. I so. know. My favorite doctor. <laughs> so... I'm finding really interesting that they've got this character, Sabine, who's bad at being a Jedi. Yeah. Because so often your your Jedi characters are larger than life. They're just awesome at everything. And Sabine's not. Yeah. <laughs> the droid says, I've seen many Padawans over the centuries, and you are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of reminds me of something actually we just talked about in Wallheads, that there's a character that they've got in that. That's he's in the books, but he's not very well developed. But he's a warder, which are the the bodyguards of the the Aya Sedai, who are the sorceresses of the setting. But he's really bad at being a warder. He lasts like five minutes in his meditation. He can't stand to have somebody riding around in his head because they've got this kind of psychic connection. And I love this character because he's he's bad at his job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for as much as the Star Wars property started off with the <laughs> start depends on when you started and how old you are <laughs> yeah you have an everyman sabine even though she is supposed to be this developed warrior she does feel relatable because she has absolutely no connection no she doesn't have absolutely no connection she does not have a natural talent with the force and for some reason that makes her even the more intriguing mm-hmm. so yeah that about wraps it up for me and my geek out um how about you, Joy? Um, my big one recently is just a couple weeks ago, um, James and I had the opportunity to go to the Lone Star Game Expo, nice. which is, yes, which was had tabletop RPGs and minis. Um, and it started on Friday and went through Sunday. Um, and we have some amazing friends who basically earned their sainthood by watching our children the whole weekend. Um, like, I don't know how we got these people in our lives, but yeah, I wouldn't watch my own children though. No, wait, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> Let's delete that part. <laughs> no, that's staying in. That's for the internet. 
Okay, then. Anywho, no, it was a really great experience. Um, so you got to sign up for what games you wanted to do ahead of time. You know, when you arrived there, there's some games that still needed players. But we kind of split it between some board games and then some RPGs, which other than um, the infamous hunt for the Danish that, Mike, you took us on a few years back, I have not played in a crazy long time, which um, side geek out. Because I haven't played in so long, I didn't have any dice, which meant, yes, unfortunately, I had to go to the local game store (laughs) and buy several shiny new pairs of dice. I mean, such a bummer and got had I mean, had to get a really cool new dice bag. So, I mean, sacrifices were made. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Mostly from your wallet. (laughs) And it only took me. I don't know how many times I sat there and spun the Chessex display trying to find that one perfect dice of, okay, I like this blue, but I don't like it with the gold. And so I need it with the silver, but they don't have the silver. And what about this? Yeah. I think James walked off at some point because I was, it was hard. It was very hard to make these decisions. Okay. I Um, think that you and I need to hang out while James and Kaja go check out whatever else that they're doing. Cause (laughs) I I will sit there right there with you like, Oh yeah. But, but look, they have this entire bucket of exactly that form of D four. So let's pick out which of these D fours goes exactly with the rest of your set. We would be terrible. That should not. Well, Yeah. Well, I mean, it's important that your D6s, your set of D6s matches your set of the others or complements them because otherwise you're not going to roll very well. Everybody knows this. All those people who get the bad rolls, it's because they have bad juju with their dice. Because they didn't bring a glass of salt water with them to test the fairness of the dice. You know... You, you say, see, okay, okay, now, uh, I would really like that tested empirically. Like, yes, the saltwater test is one form of empirical test, but how much do those air bubbles actually affect the averages of the roll if you roll the die like 1,600 times and write it down in a spreadsheet and then make charts? I'm but the con not- is only three days long. <laughs> And I was just going for pretty. Well, I mean, <laughs> honestly, let's be real. We're, there's no money on the table. Like, these cannot possibly be casino accurate dice, even with some of the most accurate dice on the market, unless you're spending something to the order of, of 150, 200 bucks on a set, which between you and me, Joy, I'm not. So, you know, with the amount of times that we're rolling, if you're enjoying the pretty, enjoy the pretty, because I enjoy the pretty. And in the end, the math matters a little to me, but not enough for me to actually start saltwater testing, especially <laughs> after I rolled those dice 1600 times and compared them to each <laughs> other and wrote it down. And yeah, hey, we're not going to talk about that. Maybe I'll write a blog post. <laughs> I said it on air. So the answer is no. I, won't. <laughs> I mean, Mike, we know you're crazy, but let's watch what we're showing here. Let's t- tone it down a bit. Okay. Can we delete that okay. part then? Uh, no. I'll discuss. I'll discuss it. I'll discuss okay. it with James. You're going to tell James to keep it in, aren't you? Anyway. Yeah, that's what she's doing. Okay. <laughs> no, but so I got to play test or not play test, but play some board games that I've been eyeing on the shelves of my local game store for ages, but never quite wanted to shell out the money. Um, the first one was the Red Dragon Inn, which um, was fabulous. I mean, the gameplay is the mechanics. Once you get them, it's fairly, fairly simple and the um, because you are either gambling, um, drinking, or forcing someone else to drink. So this is not really a child-friendly game, um, but but just the the how the characters are written and their different cards and just the flavor text really made it a lot of fun. So I think with the the right group, this this could be a really fun game. And it kind of reminded me of there's this book that came out recently. And I just lost the name of it. It's about the orc who decides to... Oh, Legends and Lattes. Oh, um, yes. Yes. It, this game made me feel like Legends and Lattes. So if you have played one and not read the book or vice versa, you should do so because they they go together. Um, except that you're not drinking lattes, but, you know, whatevs. Um, 
And then the other game I got to play was one called Mice and Mystics. So this one is kind of like a, a tabletop RPG light. Um, like it's a really good intro for kids, but it has your mini figs. Um, and it was just a lot of fun. Um, just the, the mechanics of it and the different characters. And there's a storyline that's pretty well defined. And plus our, our GM was phenomenal. Like you could tell he loved this game. He had painted all the minis to just this great detail, brought in all these extras. Um, so I think part of the fun of it was just the game was a great game. Um, and part of the fun was this, this GM who just really enjoyed sharing this game with other people. So those are the two board games that we played. And then the three tabletop RPGs we played was uh, we did one campaign with a fifth edition D&D, um, which side note, I hadn't played, I've not played D&D before and I hadn't played an RPG for forever. And so, you know, I was just asking some simple questions and it's really fun to play the ignorant female and just watch all the men like man- mansplaining. Like I, Oh no. I, yeah, it. I got so much enjoyment out of like pretending to be dumb and just letting them talk and listen to them expose their own ignorance. Oh, so, no. <laughs> so mansplaining is a you can tweak it to your own purposes. And then the other two games that we played were we played two different Pathfinder adventures. Um, one of them was just a one shot that was written by um, this local. Um, company called Cornerstone Games, um, and this, the the game was called The Problem at Butterfield Pond. And I think the guy who wrote it was our GM. His name was Joseph. He was just a f- fabulous guy, and it was a really fun um, little one shot. And the other part that was fun is that it's getting to the end of it, and him just looking at his his script and saying, "I didn't contemplate." any of this <laughs> but this is amazing so uh, that was that was a great experience and then the other one that was just just a role was um called we before goblins so the scenario is that there's four goblins and you are little toddler goblins and you haven't proven that you're good enough to be part of the goblin clan so you and your three friends have to make your way into the bog and take a, a toad and present it to um, the scary unnamed person that lives in the house on the other side of the bog and then return and shenanigans ensue because <laughs> all the rules when you are a goblin, all of the, Oh, there's a random traveler who just broke down on the side of the road. We should ambush her because that's what you do. <laughs> Made it really fun. And the fact that you're kind of incompetent at everything you do is also pretty amazing. So it was just, yeah, just a fabulous game scenario. So that's a good one for, honestly, that's a good one for inexperienced gamers and and people who just don't take themselves too seriously and just want to have a good time. So, um, yeah, well, that's it for my geek out. Let's cycle back around just one quick second because I was was doing a little googling while you were describing mice and mystics that has table presence so is this like a campaign in a box like is this yes uh, okay yeah so the story is that the king got remarried to this uh to this new queen and she actually is planning to poison him on their wedding night you and a bunch of other friends your teenagers you guys are kind of exploring um the lowest level of the castle just because you don't want to get sucked into doing chores. And you go by this room and you hear the queen talking about this to some of her guards and planning this out. Well, they open the door, they catch you. And it's to keep from being killed by these guards. One of your member decides to transmorph you into mice uh... So you escape down the sewers while well, the queen is angry because you escaped. So she turns her guards into rats and they come after you. Okay. Okay. So that's the setup. That's the hook. And so I'm assuming that the box comes with, you know, a set number of, of, of stories and you play through, you play through like a chapter a night or a chapter a week. Yes. How long did, does a single chapter take you to play through or how long did it take you in a con setting? Um, I think it took about 
two and a half, three hours, you know, okay. and some of that was the initial, you know, this is what the cards are and this is how the game works. Um, but the story itself took, took a good while and it, it was really engaging throughout. Um, so it would be some storyline and then you'd have the ability to search the room to get treasures. Um, but there's consequences because if you take too long to search, that's when your enemies creep up on you. And so you might have to fight a big bad that you weren't really ready for. Um, and then there's, then you go to the next room and there's a little bit more story arc and a, li- a lot more fighting. Um, so it's, it's, it's really fun to, to play through. Um, and like I said, there was a girl in our group who was maybe 11 and apparently, um, she, anytime this, this gen, the GM had played this game at a con the last couple of years, she's gone and sat at his table because she oh was gosh. trying to, uh, explain the rules to us in her own way. <laughs> and the GM was very patient, but you could tell he was kind of like, okay, just, just, shut up but he was so patient with her like that i gave him props for for that because i would have just little pinched her little head but um (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it was i would say um at the end we i kind of had one of those cards where you know the very end you're trying to run across an open space but not get uh, attacked by the owls and i had like this magic kind of get out of jail free card and so i did play that just to so we wouldn't die from all these owls and because it was getting really late at night. Um, but you know, you can, you can spend a long time doing these, these scenarios. So, uh, yeah, I, I'd say it's a good way to get people or, you know, children or just people who've never played an RPG. Um, just, it's a good intro, uh, cause you've got your, your board game mechanics, but then you have some RPG mechanics as well. Or somebody maybe if you just want want to want to want to play Mouse Guard without actually playing Mouse Guard. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Got it. Oh yeah, yeah. Your Redwall fans definitely. Um, and honestly, I've never done minifigs, but after playing with these, yes, give me all the paints and all the paintbrushes. <laughs> I want to do this, and I'll hope that they actually turn out good. But they won't. So until they do, <laughs> start it with a game that you'd only kind of like. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. I could start on my boys' action figures. They'll never notice. (laughs) Why does my G.I. Joe look like he's going to the Barbie movie? Never you mind, son. Never you mind. (laughs) Ken had to start somewhere. Well, then, shall we move on to our main topic? I think we probably should. What is our main topic today? Well, the question came up at some point. I don't even remember when or why. But we asked the question, what if our good guy isn't a good guy? Are all protagonists intended as role models? And what are the consequences of them having their own failings? I guess I can t- handle this one um, pretty quickly. Um, you know, what if our good guy isn't a good guy? Well, they should be. Is every a protagonist a role model? Yes. What are the consequences of not recognizing their fails? They don't have failures because you wouldn't have written the book if they weren't a good guy. Well, that about wraps it up for Geek at Arms. Um, why don't we take us to the... No. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I'll just go ahead and ask the question. What do you remember the first protagonist that you that you remember thinking that this isn't a great person? I remember the first time I had a protagonist. It wasn't even something that I had to recognize. Maybe this guy isn't such a great person because Thomas Covenant is a terrible person. From the first page of the first book, he doesn't do anything that I would consider admirable, noble. Joy, I have a question, and I'm hoping yeah. I'm asking quiet enough that Brian okay. doesn't notice. He doesn't um, hear it. Okay. Who is Thomas Covenant? So Thomas Covenant is, I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> Brian, who's Thomas Covenant? <laughs> As Thomas Covenant is the main character in the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, the Unbeliever. Uh, this was a series of novels written by Stephen R. Donaldson in the 60s or 70s. Okay. I don't remember exactly when. Uh, the first one is called Lord Fowl's Bane. And you'd think that Lord Fowl is the bad guy, and he is, but Covenant competes with him for the title. He's terrible. Okay. So uh, he's just a protagonist that is just a terrible person. Yes. How old were you when you were reading this book? I'm just curious. Too young. I think my dad <laughs> handed it to me when I was 13 or something. And within the first couple of chapters, okay, so 
it's one of those modern man gets transplanted into a fantasy world kind of thing. And our uh... protagonist has leprosy. And the first thing that happens to him when he winds up in this fantasy land is this woman finds him, he's injured, and she heals him. Not just of his injury, but of his leprosy. And he thanks her for this by sexually assaulting her. Wow. Okay. Yeah. You'd mentioned this book earlier. Okay. Yeah. So now I remember. And yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is not a good guy. And he doesn't get better until around book six when he finally kind of redeems himself. And he's the hero of the story because he possesses white gold. His wedding ring is made of white gold. And in this world, that's very magical. And so everybody thinks this guy's the hero. He's going to save us all. But he's just awful yeah 13 does seem young for that yeah i i don't know what my father was thinking (laughs) (laughs) i mean i've never given anything to my children that i shouldn't have (laughs) okay anyway moving on so the first one that i thought of was woody from toy story i mean when you're just kind of watching toy story it's a great movie it's a lot of fun but when you think about it Woody starts out as the leader, not because he has any great redeeming qualities, but because he's Andy's favorite and he has that force of personality and he has Andy's name on his foot. But once that position is challenged, he makes some pretty terrible choices. Um, And at the end, it is kind of a redemption story where he realizes that, oh, okay, maybe I don't have to be the favorite. Maybe other people. Other toys can be too, but throughout the most of the the movie, all these terrible scenarios and situations that they get into is because of his, his selfishness and his, his basically not being a great guy. And I think that Pixar has been very good at avoiding typical kids movies tropes that they can have this protagonist that we see grow in, in most stories, you know, the protagonist has to learn something but they don't have to become morally better necessarily. Um, And Pixar really broke the mold in a lot of their storytelling that way, starting from the very beginning with Woody. Yeah. Some of their molds I wish they hadn't broke because I, I did some of those movies. I just cried way too much. (laughs) Like why am I paying you money so that I can cry? I I don't like this. It's cheaper than the therapist. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but it's interesting because I had a friend who had this um who had this conversation with their with their kid. Part of it was like they're showing this film, it's cars, and like, okay, now we're gonna see how how the the protagonist grows as a person. And the child had a really, really hard time seeing that Lightning McQueen grew as a person. Because he thinks that all of the gruff that everybody around him is giving him is because they're bullies and it's because lightning McQueen is the main character. He's the fast car. He's, he's obviously the best guy. They're like, no, he's, he's not, they're not being mean. They're responding to him being terrible. (laughs) So parents are starting the therapy early and sometimes kids just aren't getting it. Who would have figured? (laughs) What about you? What's your first first encounter with not great uh with not a good good guy there had to be others that were that were earlier but the one that i'm thinking back like what was the earliest that i can remember like wow this guy is really just a human turd was um (laughs) was ash from army of darkness because i mean he's sarcastic he's quick-witted uh but he's also impatient he's unwise he's brash and the one thing that makes him a good protagonist is 85 75 at least 63 percent of the time he is being sarcastic to the right person or at least under the right condition i think that's a virtue honestly i I don't see what your problem is (laughs) yeah that just made me think of Shaun of the dead i mean there's not a whole lot of great anything that you can pull from that except that it's funny but yeah the two protagonists on that are not really great guys yeah there's nothing about their lives that you want to emulate 
it's interesting. I was just watching Taken with my dad. He's like, oh, this is a great movie. We got to watch it. And we're watching it. And like, of course, I'm like, I'm thrilled. Like, yeah, let's watch an action movie with my dad. And here's Liam Neeson's character, whose name I don't remember. Um, and he's going through the streets and brothels of 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 Paris. And, you know, he's beating up and shooting a lot of people, like based on evidence that he's strung together. And I'm thinking... The only thing that makes this guy watchable is that we as an audience are buying that he's beating up the right people. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah. if you try to apply this to the real world, that doesn't, I mean, that, that you like, you cannot emulate this because you're convinced you're right. You go in and you shoot a bunch of people uh, and a good number of them die. And then you go to prison forever. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Not an exciting movie. <laughs> Except if you're Malcolm Reynolds, because he's another one that I that I think about. You know, he's charismatic, but he's had a rough past, and he does a lot of things that are kind of questionable. But but I mean, let's just be honest. I've justified any of his misdeeds in my head because um, Malcolm Reynolds. Come on, guys. Okay, <laughs> yeah, but like let's let's kind of peel back the layer on that. Like, why do you feel the need to justify his his crimes and misdemeanors? I think because one, because he's just a likable person. You can see, you can kind of empathize with the whole, I'm just trying to survive. I'm just trying to get along. And, you know, life was going okay until y'all just showed up and ruined it. Um, and yeah, he makes some questionable choices, but wouldn't we all, you know, shoot people with blue hands? So, I, I think it's I think it's a lot of it is his likability and his the ability to empathize with his situation of being the underdog and trying to help his friends and being loyal to his crewmates. Hmm. And anybody who's ever dealt with a bureaucracy at all wants to just get in a ship and fly away and shoot anybody that tries to follow. <laughs> <laughs> I think that it's interesting because we, at least on some level, started with a default of, OK, protagonists are role models. So where does where does this idea come from that a protagonist must be a role model? Saturday morning cartoons. I don't know. It's something I've noticed lately that people are looking up to figures that are meant to be cautionary. Like if you look at recent takes on Batman and people lionizing the horrible things that he's doing, it's like it's not even the Batman that is a hero. It's this more brutal, brutal Batman. And yet people are still looking at him and saying, I wish I could be more like that. It's like, I wish they were looking at the Batman from the fifties and saying, I could, I wish I could be more like that. Not Christopher Nolan's Batman. I feel like the more recent Batman is like the Punisher, but with better PR. (laughs) Yeah. Well, again, I think that's the one thing is that we have it set. I think that we kind of have the 50s Batman in our head. Like, okay, Batman's the good guy because we grew up with, well, I mean, I grew up with Adam West. So maybe I am not the person to turn to um, where the <laughs> violence was all with pow, crash. Maybe Kevin Conroy. <laughs> uh, and I think that there's something about the idea that, yes, it's Batman. He's good. And we haven't stopped to question that to evaluate what's on the screen, because I think that what mm-hmm. makes what makes Nolan's Batman watchable or maybe even the most recent the Batman uh, when he's fighting the Riddler is that he's we as the audience are sure he's beating up the right people like you don't have this club where they just said, all right, Jimmy, well, welcome to your first day as a bouncer. Now, what you need to do here is basically crowd control. You don't need to make any really important decisions. We're going to go ahead and handle those for you. So anybody who's causing trouble, we need you to stop them from causing that trouble and then hang up the rest of us. And then then some guy in a bat costume is coming through punching everybody. And Jimmy says, oh, it's my first day. This looks like a problem that I need to stop. And now Jimmy needs bridge work. but it's it's interesting that we have this idea of the good saturday morning you know old-fashioned heroes being role models and i've had a similar experience of people taking a cautionary tale and saying it's a role model as it applies you know in my field in the ministry (laughs) um 
Let's talk a little bit about that, because this I, I think that people sometimes try to get nostalgic and say, oh, back in the good old days, our good guys were good and our bad guys were bad. And we didn't have any of this muddy, complicated characters like, OK, um, are you telling me that Samson's a guy that you look up to like this, this guy, <laughs> this this guy who is a routine oath breaker, who is having I, I I would say non emulatable relations with with his girlfriends plural, and yeah, there's just not okay. And he also has like really bad puns. I mean, if, especially if you're reading the Hebrew, it's really really awful. Um, <laughs> why do you need to take just because they're a biblical figure and they're the protagonist to say that we should emulate this? Because we really shouldn't. I think that I even had somebody recently on a on a Christian D and D board say, "Okay, well, I'm thinking of uh, if we're going to make uh, if we're going to make Samson a D and D character, we'd make him a paladin, right?" <laughs> oh, yikes! Right. So I've had some complaints that I've seen that fictional characters are not being good role models, and the critic just assumes that they're supposed to be pillars of virtue, which I don't think that the narrative supports. Yeah. I had a conversation with my ex-wife once and she was talking about Elsa from Frozen. And I don't remember the exact context of the conversation because I hadn't seen Frozen at the time. So I didn't have anything to offer her. But I think that she missed the point that even though Elsa is the central character, she's kind of the monster in the story. Let it go is not a hero's anthem. The lyrics say, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. That's not the moral lesson that you're drawing from the film. It's funny because I heard people complaining about that song because it was teaching children that there is no such thing as right and wrong. And I'm like, I think that's not, that's a character moment, not a takeaway. Yeah, this is the villain song. I think that when we're, when we're younger, um, we like to put our narratives in good guy who is all good and bad guy who is all bad categories. And it's easy to see when we're telling fables or morality tales, but not all tales are fables or morality plays. And maybe that's why Frozen brought up the conversation since it does have a its target audience is young. And that's a good point, because younger target audiences they are still learning black versus white shades of gray are very hard to, for them to understand and very hard to explain to them. Um, and so while I think having a character who's conflicted provides more realism in some aspect and, and is definitely a better fleshed out story from the storytelling perspective, I think for a child's movie, it can pose some really difficult problems of, okay, well, Elsa's the queen. Why would she be bad? You know, how do you explain to your child that she makes beautiful ice palaces and she can do all these awesome things and she's the queen, but okay, maybe she's not, she's not a good person, you know, and a lot of her choices are not, not ones that I want you making. Right. And it's not as though she has any sort of malice involved. Mm -hmm. She has no ill will. She's just, she's just done. And free for the first time and just blind to what basically just blind to the consequences of of her actions at that juncture in her life. So, yeah, I think that makes it hard for them to say, you know, oh, she's a bad guy. But she isn't. I don't think that she's bad. She's no, that's why I said everyone. that she's the monster and not yeah. the villain. Oh, exactly. I, I, I fundamentally agree with her as as sympathetic monster. Mm hmm. But I think that once once we get into stepping into this child perspective, um, sometimes it's hard to see the difference between the the monster and the villain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to really emphasize the end of the story more than the middle. You have to say, look at where she wound up. And she had to go through these things to be able to get there. But that's the important. This is what you want to emulate is. I have to make the effort to fix my mistakes. Yeah. Not that I will never make mistakes. Yeah. So uh, with that in mind, are is every protagonist intended to be a role model? Is that the point of fiction? Absolutely, yes. That's the reason why I watched... <laughs> 
I watched the uh, the reason why I watched the series Wednesday is because I thought she was an amazing friend. She would be a <laughs> wonderful person to hang out with. Like, you know, it, it, this this is also kind of the crazy thing. These people are interesting to watch. Wednesday Adams was fantastic on screen. In the new representation, she would be a nightmare in a friend group. Kavoth, <laughs> mm. as much as I love Name of the Wind and the Wise Man's Fear, um, as much as I hope I'm going to love the Doors of Stone, I don't want him in my friend group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every once in a while, I see one of those things where they've divided up like Marvel characters onto tables in the cafeteria and says, which table are you sitting at? No, none of those people. I don't, I don't want to be anywhere close to them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm trying to think of it. Oh, Captain America. I think I might sit at his table. I still think at some point masonry is going to rain down and kill everybody around him. Oh, shoot. Yeah. (laughs) Can I have the personality without the, big attractive target for danger and yeah okay i want to be in the next state (laughs) and is it the fact that these that these people are enjoyable to watch that sometimes clouds our judgment as to whether or not they're they're good or role models or even halfway decent people i mean yeah i think so like you look at you look at the huge following that some of these um influencers get you know (laughs) And if you actually pay attention to what they're saying or doing, like these are really self-centered. A lot of the, you know, I, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but sure, sure, sure. a lot of them are very self-centered people, but because they have something that maybe you want, like the popularity or the money or whatever, you tend to gloss over how they got there and how they're acting with it. So I think sometimes when you have a likable character on the screen, you want to like them and therefore you don't really want to see their flaws. You're focused on the kind of like the Malcolm Reynolds. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he did, did shoot that officer and yeah, they did steal the drugs from the government, but he's Malcolm Reynolds. So it must be right. Right. Yeah. I think that we get caught up a lot in that feeling towards that character that gets or feelings in these narratives and it it clouds us to to recognizing their failure. So I guess here's the next question: What are the consequences of not recognizing these people's failures? Uh, and one of the ones that my wife and I have been uh, had been preaching through some of our our narratives in Genesis, following the lectionary, we kind of had some of these basically treating them as family stories. And sometimes the stories that we tell of our family to our children and our grandchildren aren't necessarily there to say, this was my best moment, or this was Aunt Linda's most amazing moment, or this is when my mom had done blah, blah, blah. Not because this was, this was right, but because it's, you know, what happened. And there are a lot of opportunities in Genesis to see some of these, what we like to see as people. They are patriarchs, and I don't want to call them heroes of the faith because they weren't. They made a lot of mistakes. They did a lot of awful things, and especially if we kind of whitewash it in some of our translations, the text doesn't provide the commentary when it pre- presents the protagonist doing something awful. And because it doesn't comment to say, and now, children, stealing that from your brother is bad. Stealing the gods from your uncle is bad continuing to i don't know lie repeatedly about your wife is bad uh, sending your child out with only a water skin and surely they're going to 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 die in the desert is bad they don't say it and so sometimes i think there's a compulsive need to make these people spotless protagonists and if we do not look at their failings and call them the sins that they are it makes it a lot easier to look at ourselves and say, mm-hmm. well, we can overlook my failings because we're so well-practiced at it. Yeah, and I think I think we tend to justify things, saying, well, I mean, yeah, that's what happened, but it was okay because this or that or the other. When, no, sometimes people that you look up to make bad choices or, or do awful things. And that doesn't mean that – and I think that kind of kills the, you know – I want to be this perfect 
person. And if we recognize that these heroes or whomever it is, someone that we look up to had these massive failings, like, oh shoot, what does that say about me? Hmm. You know, I'm, I'm not to that level of faith. I, I didn't do all that. Um, and they did this awful thing. They, they murdered this person or they, you know, whatever, you know, oh, oh man, that they danced in victory till their underwear was, was on display before, before the entire kingdom. (laughs) That is why I do not watch football. Just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was talking about second Samuel, but you know, I see a lot of parallels. (laughs) Yeah, I think that it's it's interesting, especially, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and pick up that second Samuel thread is because there's, um, especially as we're talking about, about like a figure like David, because, okay, he's, uh, he's the king over united Israel in, in Judah. And there is this dynasty of the Davidic line. And yeah, there's a lot of amazing things going, going on with this character, um, with this figure. Uh, but especially in that story, when he's dancing with victory, like he's a king, he has a certain position and standing. And I don't know exactly what sort of dance uh, in which uh, your your undergarments are on display. I have uh, not danced thusly. But his wife says, <laughs> hey, look, you can't comport yourself like this. And he replies, well, I was dancing for the Lord. And that's just kind of the final say. Now you can easily say like, okay, well, he showed her like he had the, he had the answer. What he was doing was righteous because he said it was righteous. And the narrator never jumped in to say, and lo, it was not righteous. Um, (laughs) A a lot of Morgan Freeman did not step in in the narrative to say, (laughs) and yet it was not righteous that we wind up taking his side because he's David. Yeah, the Blues uh, Brothers are on a mission from God, too. Right. <laughs> but they made a bunch of Nazis jump into the water, so... Eh, so they must be okay, too. They must be They must be the good guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you just look around Twitter for conversations about David, you can see how terrifying this can be. Um, because there's this whole thing that goes on with people trying to say that Bathsheba was at fault for that whole situation where he effectively forced himself on her, whether that was actually doing so with the force of his presence or just because, Hey, I'm the King and you have to obey and then murders her husband. And people are saying, well, yeah, but it's David. So that was all the the correct thing to do. Yeah. But it's Harvey Weinstein and we love his movies. (laughs) Right. And I just have to wonder if you're a woman overhearing this conversation, how terrifying that has to be. I, and I recognize I'm saying this from multiple layers of privilege that I enjoy. Right. It's just, it turns my stomach. Yeah. I think it, it get, people get so focused on, I like this character, therefore he must be perfect. Therefore it really has to be the victim's fault because I wouldn't like somebody who does these bad things. Cause I'm not a bad person. So I, it's hard to, to acknowledge that maybe the, person that I do like has some serious flaws. I mean, you see that in contemporary situations all the time with star athletes or celebrities or politicians, you know, I like this person. Therefore, whatever they did can't be that bad. There's the sympathetic character that makes us feel a certain way. So we immediately feel the need to, to cover up some of the, well, yeah, but but what was the context in which he murdered 18 children? Yeah, I think that, you know, after you mentioned this about um, David in his uh, dance, I mean, it's really hard when you're reading that, when you're teaching that Bible story to children and they're like, oh, this is really bad. But then someone tries to justify that it's good. I think you're absolutely right. If we aren't careful in recognizing that, okay, maybe this quote unquote hero did make some pretty terrible choices. It really can confuse the issue for people who are reading it the first time or children. And, and either as a child, they, they believe you. And then they don't, it, it, they lose the ability to recognize that good people can make bad choices. Yeah. 
and they they think that you're supposed to justify that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas for you know someone who's an adult coming in and reading this the first time, if you know somebody tries to justify it to them, they start thinking, what what am I reading, and what are you guys? Do like this is, is this crazy. Really what you believe? Yeah, yeah, what kind of a person are you? So I think um, ignoring that and and putting on blinders to you know our ability to rewrite history to protect someone that we like or that we prefer, you know, it can absolutely cause huge huge problems for children for the victims. And also, let's reflect on not all scripture is suited for children of of early years. Some of it may not even be suited for for polite company. I would refer to uh, Ezekiel 23. Won't reference the specific verse, but read through it. You'll be fine. This is for adult viewership only. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I think that I think there is some level of really appreciating these role model figures who are role models. Um, I can think of a few really good, good characters. um, And I think that there's uh, a certain level of training and experience and maturity that has to come, the ability to critically analyze what are these sympathetic individuals doing, and does the fact that I'm sympathetic necessarily make them admirable? You know, I think one one book, and this is not biblical, but one book that I feel like is super dangerous because you like the protagonist is the, the Twilight series. You know, when I first oh, read those, I first read those, um, I was on a work trip and I, you know, had the evenings and weekends free. And so I was tearing through them. They're very well written. I mean, ignore the movies, blah, but the books <laughs> themselves are very quick and easy to read. They're compelling. There's a love story. And then a couple weeks later, so I was an auditor at the time, and I was working with this nonprofit that reached out to battered and abused women. And I was chatting with one of the ladies there, and she said, you know, these books are making our jobs infinitely harder because all of the warning signs of a predatorial man are being glamorized mm-hmm. in this book. And so we're teaching a generation of teenage girls that all of these terrible controlling behaviors are desirable. And she's like, I can't tell you. I mean, the the cases I've seen of abusive boyfriends in high schools has just increased tremendously because girls are being taught that we really like Edward Cullen. He's very cute and he's rich. And oh, doesn't he love her so much that that must mean what he's doing is good. Um, and so I think you're absolutely right that the consequences of not recognizing the failures of, of the protagonists can be can be really devastating. And I think in this, I've only read one of the Twilight series, so you have to correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't the author presenting uh, Edward as a desirable character rather than with the intention of, oh, yeah, he's doing these things, but he's not all that great, but she still loves him. I mean, like, I think that she, there was some level of her lack of if i'm if i'm understanding correctly and she was writing him as a desirable character it was her lack of insight and presenting it as desirable that allowed some of the audience to kind of be wooed into into this artificial narrative definitely and i mean it definitely plays on the whole um good girl saving the bad boy or saving the the brooding you know Angel and Buffy, like the brooding (laughs) angel character, like that's what they're playing on the whole time for sure of, of her kind of redeeming this character. Um, But none of his actions ever change or get better. Instead, he just sucks her into his crazy vampire world. Um, And it normalizes. A vampire would suck you. (laughs) Weird. Hey, there we go. No, but it, it it almost justifies all of his behaviors because then in the end, she becomes a be- beautiful, sparkly vampire that lives forever and has superpowers and super, you know, so it actually does the opposite. There's no redemption. There's there's just glorification of all these terrible things. OK, so I never read to the end. So in the end, Van Helsing does not show up. No, but what that would be thing for. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, seriously. No, I just went to the the latest Van Helsing movie that I watched, um, the great um, homage um, put out by Adam Sandler. Have you guys seen that one? I have not. It's uh, animated. Um, I'm trembling just, now. 
Yeah, no, that's a whole thing. Um, you've you've seen this. You've heard of these um, Hotel Transylvania. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, yes. So I don't know if you saw Van Helsing in I think it was Hotel Transylvania three, but yeah, he's a crazy old man in a in a wheelchair. Like he's gone off the deep end, and he's trying to take everyone, all the good vampires with him. So to be fair, Van Helsing wasn't really very balanced in the original novel either. No, <laughs> none of these characters were were terribly <laughs> well balanced in the original. It's been years since I read it. All right, so. We have gone from admirable characters to vampires. It's only just a short hop, skip, and a jump from vampires to some other mythical creature. So shall we talk about our zombie apocalypse strategy of the week? What have you got for us, Mike? Uh, not a whole lot. As a matter of fact, the uh, pe- the person that we're going to have leading us on this expedition is unfortunately a horribly flawed character, and we're going to be in close confines as this person is working through a lot of personal and emotional issues. Granted, they're going to save us in the end, but, oh gosh, let's try to learn something about ourselves along the way, shall we, please? We shall do our best. Okay, that was weak sauce. Does anybody have a pitch for anything better? Or should I pitch the zombie apocalypse strategy of the week to somebody else? I don't have anything. Okay. Joy, only you can save us. Oh, no. Oh, no. Then there's no saving us. We're doomed. Okay. (laughs) We put our faith in a flawed person and he has let us down. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Oh, gosh. I mean, I would call on Van Helsing, but he's he's gone off his rocker. (laughs) Yeah. Does, does he subcontract for zombies now? Maybe. <laughs> All of this time, we've been looking at the zombies as the bad guys. Maybe they're the protagonists. They're the role models we should be looking up to. <gasps> what do the zombies have for us? Oh, my gosh. Brains. Brains. <laughs> so this is where we rewrite Grimm's fairy tales. And I- yeah, yikes. I want to do a crazy animated series of Vanessa Helsing, his 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 granddaughter, who's who's picking up the vampire hunting. But you know, I don't I don't have the money for that, nor do I really have a solid pitch. But well, I think that wraps it up for us this week. Um, this is Brian, Mike, and not James signing off. We appreciate y'all joining us on this adventure um, where we learned about our our favorite role models, and to maybe you should learn to love your zombie. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, where can uh, our listeners find us? Uh, you can find us at uh, facebook.com slash geek at arms at uh, geek at arms.com. And uh, we are arms geek on what's left of Twitter. And so from all of us here at geek at arms, Brian, Mike, James, and joy, be safe, be blessed and be geeky. Thanks for listening to geek at arms. Music for this podcast was provided by incompetech.com. For more, check us out at facebook.com forward slash geek at arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. I did it wrong. That's okay. We're, <laughs> okay. We can, this magic of editing. Just do what? it till it feels right. Okay. Lots of work for James. Yes. I'm going to just randomly have like Will Shatner pauses. Because that would be fun. <laughs> <laughs>